I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Colossians 1, page 1168 of your pew Bibles, and I would encourage you to open those Bibles because we'll not only consider a passage in Colossians, but at the end of the message, turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And uh, here at Ammon Valley, we are working our way once again through the Heidelberg Catechism, and so some of you, maybe who are visiting the church, might have been a little bit perplexed by the image that you see um, as the night sounds were singing and as um, the image that's on the screen right now. That is an image of Heidelberg, Germany, and so it's a uh, beautiful image that was taken of the Church of the Holy Spirit to the right there and the Schloss Heidelberg, the Heidelberg Palace that is up on the hillside, and um, we are studying this confession of faith that we hold so dearly to as a congregation, and uh, just recognizing that we, we have many here who weren't with us last Sunday or the Sunday before, I thought it would be helpful to kind of set the stage for where we're at in the sermon series to get you up to speed. So although today is the ninth Lord's Day of 2024, we are in Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism tonight. After the comforting teaching of Lord's Day 1, this passage that is so beloved in the Christian Reformed Church that, that we belong to, to Christ, a faithful Savior, body and soul, and life and in death, we find great comfort in the beginning of the catechism. We move quite quickly in our study of the catechism to the section called Misery. Uh, we learn there about God's law and how the law of God, which is to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, is a law that we fall short of following. And so we fail to live up to the perfect standard that God has set before us. In fact, the Catechism teaches we have a natural tendency to run further away from God and not towards Him. We have a natural tendency, the Catechism teaches, to hate God and our neighbor. And so what the beginning of the Catechism wants to establish is that human nature, after Adam and Eve's fall into sin, was not just that they were displaced from the garden, but that, that human nature, because of sin, has been corrupted. It's not as though we just commit the occasional sin that needs forgiving, but the Catechism teaches that we are in misery because of the spiritual state of humanity, that sin has corrupted our nature, that we're born with sin and that we commit sins against God. And so this, uh, this word for misery that the Catechism often uses to describe the condition of humanity is, is a word that you really see a lot through the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's not a word that you would hear very often in churches today. The misery in the original German text of the Catechism has a very full meaning. And in the same way that we could study Greek for the New Testament and Hebrew for the Old Testament, it's kind of helpful to know a little bit about the German language for interpreting the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism, which was written, of course, in German. And that word for misery, Eland, is, it's a German word that, it, it's not just a sense of failure, but it's a sense of lostness. It's a really profound word full of deep meaning that, that the word for misery connotes a sense of exile and hopelessness, that that is the state of humanity because of sin entering the world through Adam and Eve. And so this is one of the ways that the Reformed faith, I would say, 
is distinct from some of our evangelical Christian neighbors. Um, Sometimes in a a typical evangelical church, which could be a, a Christian church teaching the gospel, the way that sin is talked about, it could sound a little bit like a person just does some sinful things and those sins are forgiven by Christ. But in the Reformed faith, we actually hold to a much, I would say, deeper theology of the effects of sin on human nature. So it's not as though the person is just one who does the occasional sin that's covered by the blood of Christ, but every person has a corrupt nature, is a rebel, as the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones would often say, born in exile from a holy God because of original sin and because of the things that we do that are sinful to push us further away from God. And so, we will hear clear teaching about this in the scripture text, Colossians 1, 21 through 23, and then we will hear uh, good teaching from the Heidelberg Catechism following that. Having already prayed um, over this, uh, this time, let's look to God's word in Colossians 1. The Apostle Paul writes, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, that is Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Catechism follows the teaching about alienation and exile that we hear in Colossians chapter 1 with a series of thoughtful and logical questions in, um, in Lord's Day uh, 3. And so um, we'll see the teaching now of the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 6, 7, and 8. And during these evening services, I invite you to res- respond out loud, reading the answer to the Catechism after I ask the question, brothers and sisters, did God create people so wicked and perverse? No, God created them good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that they might truly know God, their creator, love him with all their heart, and live with God in eternal happiness to praise and glorify him. Then where does this corrupt human nature come from? The fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in a sinful condition. And then finally, number eight, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and incline toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Amen. The theme here of alienation from God, of exile from God, is not a minor theme in the Scriptures. It's seen from the book of Genesis all the way to to Revelation. 
It's no small detail that the Lord banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden after they sin. This is not just a physical relocation of our first parents. Sometimes if we think of it only in the the children's story kind of way that God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden to live somewhere else, kind of just as a physical relocation, the extent of God's punishment for them could be lost on us. It's far more than a physical relocation, but there are spiritual consequences to their sin that place them now far from God. The fall, the catechism said, so poisoned our nature that the whole lineage of Adam and Eve would be born in a sinful condition, except, of course, for Christ who was incarnate by the Holy Spirit. And so in keeping with this theme of exile, we can see the same story unfolding at various points in the scriptures. You might recall, of course, the story of slavery in Egypt, where the Israelites were living in slavery there, and and the problem wasn't just that the Egyptians were being cruel to them. Of course, that was a big part of the problem, the cruelty of the Egyptian masters. But do you remember one of the main purposes that the Lord gave freedom to the people of Israel. Exodus 7 verse 16, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me, says Moses, to say to you, O Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert, so that they might be restored to God more fully by worshiping him without any hindrance in the desert. So we tend to think of the main problem in Egypt as being kind of under hard working conditions, and that's a big part of it. But the greater issue in Egypt was that Israel was hindered in their worship of the Lord. They were sensing this exile that they had from God and from his promises. Then we find another point in the story of the Old Testament where there is a literal exile that happens, where the people of Israel are removed from the land that the Lord God had promised to give Abraham and his descendants. And once again, this isn't just a matter of a physical relocation from Israel to Babylon or Assyria, but the problem was the spiritual condition that that physical relocation represented. The cause of exile was always sin. So even for some of those who were allowed to remain in Israel during that time, uh, they still would have had sin that was creating a barrier between them and God. So the promises of God have always remained, but there were times when Israel worshiped false gods or trusted in themselves and disobeyed God's command to seek justice and love mercy and walk humbly with him. And so therefore the result was sometimes a literal exile, but was always a spiritual exile from God, no matter where they were living. And then in the apostle Paul's letters pick up this theme of alienation and exile from God. We read one such passage where in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, it says, You were once alienated and hostile in mind towards God, doing evil deeds. And we don't just read about this doctrine in the Bible, but we experience it today, don't we? All of us will experience a sense of distance from God at various points in our lives. All of us will experience that sense of of darkness, where we're pleading for God to to shine the light of Christ into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds. And 
and all of us will experience that distance from God and that is caused by sin. Each of us has committed sin that pushes God away, whether we feel that way or not. There's a question that a person then would be wise to ask. Is this the way it's always been? This sense of humanity's distance from God. The world has various answers for that sense of lostness in humanity. One um, opinion that the world would give, one philosophy would suggest that humanity is bad, human nature is bad always by its nature, and that's the way that it's always been. Uh, This would mean that we were created in a way to be exiled from God, and we better work really hard to get back into the presence of God. There's a, a psychologist today named Jordan Peterson who's very popular with conservative types who teaches essentially that doctrine, that humanity, human nature is essentially bad and always has been. And Jordan Peterson has kind of a famous saying. He said, life is suffering, so get your act together. (laughs) Life is suffering. It's hard. So get your act together. Work harder. Put your house in order. Make your bed. Do basic things that will kind of counteract in some small way the suffering of the world, and that's the best you could do. The problem, of course, with this philosophy is is not only that it's unbiblical, but that that philosophy cuts us off from experiencing any, any kind of real qualitative spiritual change in our nature, which we know, of course, is possible for the one who is born again. For the person who is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, life is not essentially suffering, but life is abundant, as Jesus promised in John 10, verse 10. So, one option is that, that life is suffering, life is bad, that's the way it has always been, and it's the way it always will be. Another option would be kind of the opposite, that humanity, some would say, is good at its core, and the occasional sin that people would commit is an anomaly. That's kind of the exception, because people are, are so full of uh, potential, and goodness, and the bad things that people occasionally do towards one another are exceptional, or those are the anomalies. Uh, Such people would say that maybe we've been created in in God's presence, and the occasional sin threatens that, but, but it's maybe pretty easy to be restored to God, because our nature is actually pretty good. So, um, in this line of thought, I want to share with you a quote from Nelson Mandela, who, who taught that second philosophy in his book, Long Walk to Freedom. It's a famous quote. I've once seen it painted on the side of a wall in a big city. He said, No one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Now, that sounds very nice and very inspirational, but it is not true. It is not biblical. Um, And that's not just Reformed folks who would disagree with Nelson Mandela's bad theology. That would be every Christian who would would recognize that, that not only is that not true in the biblical sense, but that's just not reality that we could observe. Nelson Mandela probably didn't realize it, but right here he's teaching an ancient philosophy called Pelagianism. And it was one of the the great um, scourges of the church that St. Augustine would argue against often. 
Pelagianism is the idea that every person is born as a blank slate. And how they are nurtured will either guide them towards hate or towards virtue. And, of course, uh, Pelagianism is, is an unchristian doctrine, and it was argued against throughout the whole history of the church. Now, the Reformed teaching, based on Scripture, is quite opposite, isn't it? That we are so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined towards all evil. Without God's intervention, says Paul to the Ephesians, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. So option two doesn't seem very good from a biblical or catechetical um, perspective. But there's a third option that's maybe become a little bit more popular as well. That's the idea that humanity is bad, but we are evolving towards wholeness. Um, Reverend Henry Treisenberg is a minister in the Christian Reformed Church about 100 years ago. And uh, he has a whole collection of catechism sermons that I'll consult occasionally. I was reading through one of his sermons um, to prepare for this message. And about 100 years ago, that would have been a very popular way of thinking about human nature. Um, the the, theology, the uh, theory of evolution had just sort of taken root in the late 1800s. And then in the 1910s and 20s, this question of how evolution could apply to theology was very popular, particularly in um, liberal seminaries. And so Henry Treisenberg um, rightly sort of took on that zeitgeist or that trend that was saying that evolution isn't just a biological theory, but it could be a spiritual theory as well, that maybe it's not just that, that people are kind of improving and learning about technology and how society should be functioned, but that even spiritually, some were saying at the time, every generation could get better than the one before kind of naturally, and that's the way that things are evolving towards. So you can see there that evolution wasn't just a biological theory, but there are many who are claiming that moral good, the moral goodness of humanity is improving with each generation, that we are evolving from simple, violent, foolish apes into enlightened, cooperative, benevolent people. Very popular teaching in right about 100 years ago. And so we can ask, what is the teaching of the scriptures? concerning this very important question. Well, of course, we have in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Genesis 1 and 2, things are, what God says, very good. Things are perfect. There is life in the garden. There is fellowship between Adam and Eve. Uh, right at the end of Genesis 2, it says they, are, they were naked and unashamed. They had great communion with one another. That there was fellowship not just between Adam and Eve, but fellowship with God. And so from there, because of their sin, they're sent then into exile. Adam and Eve chose to disobey, and in doing so, they poisoned our nature. So as the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1, we are naturally then alienated from God. So as we think about these doctrines, you might be wondering, why is this important? And I'll give three ways to conclude this evening. Why is this doctrine of the fall so important for our understanding of human nature and human life? First, it is important to recognize that we are not naturally spiritually well. 
it's good for us to recognize that we're not okay by our own nature, by our own goodness. There's, there's no hope if we're going to be hoping in ourself, in ourselves, in our morality, in our virtues. The theologian G.K. Chesterton once wrote that the doctrine of original sin is confirmed by empirical evidence every day. I think he was certainly right. I repeat that idea, he said, the doctrine of original sin, that we have a sinful nature, is confirmed every day in our interactions with people in the world. And not so much just that we would go around noticing it in other people, but it's confirmed every day if we look at our own souls. So, first we've got to recognize that sin is everywhere. The Canons of Dort, Part 3, Article 3, teach this um, with basically every phrase here from the Canons of Dort is straight out of the Bible. It's a really wonderful synthesis of various teachings that point us to the doctrine of total depravity. Therefore, all people, this is therefore after Adam and Eve sinned, all people are now conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God and to reform their distorted nature or even to dispose themselves to such reform. And so first we recognize that we are not spiritually well, and and really what flows out of that is any salvation that we would receive would be absolutely by grace and by the power of God. That it's not as though we just commit the occasional sin, but our nature is still good enough where we could choose Christ or choose to follow God, but we, all of these phrases is biblical, are inclined towards evil, dead in sins, and slaves to sin. We need to be absolutely, powerfully, miraculously delivered from our sin and our sinful nature. A second reason this doctrine is important is because God cannot be blamed for the sin that we chose to bring into the world. James 1 verse 13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And so, um, you might recall option number one, that humanity has always just been kind of messed up. And that would actually be a judgment on God and his creation, if that were the case. But we can give thanks to God that he has created his world very good and um, mysteriously and sort of complicated to figure out exactly how free will and God's sovereignty interact with one another, but has given free will to Adam and Eve who chose to sin instead of living with God. And so there was a fall that was the product of a human decision and cannot be assigned to God. St. Augustine is said to have prayed in a way that would acknowledge that truth. He would often pray, God, thank you for the good that has happened in my life and the rest is my fault. God, thank you for the good that has come to me today. The rest is my fault. That's a a good way to pray, I believe. And so uh, that recognizes that, that God is not the author of confusion, that God is a God of order and not chaos, that God is not one who tempts us, but tempted by the devil, Adam and Eve fell into sin. And finally and lastly, there's a third reason why this doctrine matters so much. If we believe that 
this exile, this pollution of our human nature is the way that things have always been, then we would be tempted to think that it's the way that it will always be as well, but that's not the case. So just as sin being in the world is not the way that it's always been, the Christian can have hope that this isn't the way things will always be for God's elect either. So to answer the question very frankly, is this the way it's always been? No. And it's not the way that it will always be either. There is hope that a restoration, a recreation, a resurrection, and a new creation will uh, be God's plan for the earth. So if we believe that this exile has polluted humanity, we would also believe, based on the scriptures, that there is a solution to that exile. That is Christ. So after the Apostle Paul taught that we were born in exile, he followed that good with the good news, the good news of Christ. Teaching Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There's hope. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So the distance from God caused by sin has been bridged by Christ for God's elect. The Christian is already raised to new life through Christ, that's the teaching later in the Catechism, which means that Every moment that God blesses you today with the ability to to know him and to follow him, that's a glimpse of what will come in heaven and what will be our reality in the new creation. And so God is not just given us a promise of fixing creation someday, but because the resurrection of Christ has happened in this world, there's already new creation realities that are breaking into the world today by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's not just something that we wait someday for, although then it will happen fully and absolutely, as Revelation teaches, and then I will be their God and they will be my people, and Revelation says, and I will dwell with them again. And so the Christian life, when lived in obedience to God, is full of glimpses of that new creation. We find this and in other places in Uh, the letter to the Colossians, where Paul writes in Colossians 3, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And so there's a renewal of human nature and even creation that's already happening in the world by God's grace. So the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was not only a proof that His death was effective in earning our salvation. It was a sacrifice unto God that he received. But the resurrection of Christ is also an embodied promise of the believer's future. That life as we know it today won't always be like this. But that in Christ we too will be raised to new life at the last day. To conclude, I want to read from Romans 5, verses 12 through 17, and if you still have your Bibles open, I encourage you to turn there. I won't offer any further thoughts on the passage. It's not as though we're starting a new sermon here by looking at a new uh, scripture text, but conclusion of the message from Romans 5, verses 12 through 17. 
And I want to conclude with these words because they so powerfully illustrate all of this recreating, resurrecting, renewal that God is doing through Christ in the world. Starting at verse 12 of Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift of God is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have received the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift of The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one's one trespasses, sorry, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray.